You're listening to part two of my conversation with Robert Daly, director of the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Woodrow Wilson Center. If you've not listened to part one, I think you'll enjoy that first. Now back to the conversation with Robert Daly. You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Today's New York Times mentioned China's strategy made in China 2025. Made in China 2025. I've been watching China for 30 years. And Americans always getting themselves, all, what does China want? What does China want? China tells you what it wants. It's just hard to believe. They've always told us what they want. And Made in China 2025 is a plan by that date to have China lead in a series of technologies. And this includes things like electronic vehicles, new machine equipment. Artificial intelligence. Internet of Things. Artificial intelligence is not listed as one of the 10 under 2025, but you're absolutely correct that China also has a program heavily funded to lead in artificial intelligence. China is investing, making long-term strategic investments through its centrally planned industrial policy in leading the knowledge economy and leading in investment in technologies that are going to drive the next phase of discovery. Why do they want to do that? Well, any great country would, obviously, in part because these new technologies, if we think about the cell phones that we work on in so many ways now, which have become most of our individual platforms in which we function, the next generation of technology therefore equals economic power, military power because of dual use, also soft or cultural power because of the nature of these platforms. You know, we tend to think of soft power as being driven by films and novels and popular songs. That's the old game. Soft power now accrues to people who master the platform. I'm so glad you brought up soft power because I was invited to attend a lunch in the day in Houston hosted by the Consul General in Houston who has the rank of ambassador. And it was to discuss President Trump's summit meetings in Beijing. And it's the first time that I've ever seen this type of invitation. It reminded me of things that the United States used to do with our strong United States Information Agency or USIS. And it just seems to me that China now is spending so much more money on soft power. And we are spending less and less, especially what you're seeing now at the Department of State. I began my career with USIS. I knew the late lamented agency well. And by the time that I joined in 86, it was already in decline. Arts America and the big programs that you talk about, yeah. doing things with the splash. Right. In our libraries. Yeah, and so yeah, forth. that was already on its way out. Libraries lasted a little bit longer, but the big splashy productions, you know, in the mid 80s, they brought the Alvin Ailey dance troupe to sure. China, for example. It was the event of the year on the Beijing cultural calendar. That was on its way out. And you're right that China is spending far more through Confucius Institutes, through Year of China events in various places, and then, of course, through investment in media. Most of this has been money burned for China so far. They're very bad at it. The fact that some of our uses programs have declined is lamentable in some countries, but not in others, because our cultural power never derived primarily from American government investments. It was from the private sector. Mm -hmm. It was commercialized. You know, the people who accuse us of coca colonization, we never forced anybody at gunpoint to wear a baseball cap to start a hip-hop crew or to wear blue jeans. They paid money for the privilege. It was demand-driven. 
And our culture is vibrant and attractive and drives soft power for that reason, because of the creativity behind it. Chinese government-run programs are abysmal. They are dull, they are heavy-handed, they are didactic, they are transparently propagandistic, and especially under Xi Jinping and his ideology campaign, which is nearly Maoist, and its insistence that everybody, including cultural creators, serve the people. They're not allowing their private sector to flourish. Of course there's tremendous creative talent in China. If it were released, I think that there would be a flood of creativity that would be a new renaissance. But in fact, China, for all of its money spent on cultural soft power, what it calls cultural soft power, it has almost nothing to show for it. They get somewhere through checkbook diplomacy. And you're that almost seeing that rejection now of what you say, checkbook diplomacy in Africa and South America. Well, this is an interesting thing to keep track of. That has been China's play, checkbook diplomacy, building infrastructure, mostly for purposes of natural resource extraction for China. And this has been done in a very ham-handed way, which has had China accused of neocolonialism in these countries. They go in, they don't do environmental impact statements, they don't hire local people, they bring in Chinese workers, and the accusation goes in South America and especially Africa, resource extraction and then the selling back of finished products was the heart and soul of colonialism and that's what you're doing. Okay, what worries me is that Americans take too much comfort in that, hearing that accusation of neocolonialism, and they miss two things. One, China's adapting. China's deeply sensitive because of its own history to accusations of neocolonialism and China is learning to be a great power. They are changing their practices. So we tend to lose track of that. And number two, we lose track of the fact that we still don't have an Africa policy or a Latin America policy, and we act as if these two countries never exist. And our pivot to Asia really hasn't been very consistent. Our pivot to Asia hasn't been consistent, and China is adapting, but they are building in Africa and Latin America highways, rail lines, airports, ports, while we offer sermons on democracy. Where do you think their sympathies will lie as China adjusts its tactics? In our earlier segment, you talked about how China and the United States may see North Korea very differently. Right. Summarize that for us. China is sincere in preferring to have a denuclear Korean Peninsula. This is sincere. And China has tightened up down on North Korea a little bit in terms of some sanctions. We want sanctions to bring Kim Jong-un to his knees. China just wants them to bring Kim Jong-un in line. We want change of regime. We want regime change. We say we don't. We do. China doesn't want that. China wants North Korea as a buffer. It does not want a unified North Korea under South Korean terms, namely as an American treaty ally that could potentially bring American troops to the Yalu River. We've seen that movie before in 1950. It didn't end well. China also has ideological reasons for continuing to support North Korea based on their history during the Korean War. So China doesn't want regime change in North Korea. Where is this going? Kim Jong-un has succeeded. He will not give up his nuclear weapons. He has no reason to. We say we don't accept North Korea as a nuclear power. Yes, we do. Non-bombing of facilities is acceptance. What we mean is we don't like North Korea having nuclear weapons. Well, welcome to the long list of things the United States doesn't like. So options? Options are looking at ways to prevent North Korea from using or selling nuclear weapons. We also have to start working with other nations, including China, to talk about what is it going to mean to live in a more highly proliferated world. North Korea has proven that the most reviled, 
desperately poor, closely watched and opposed nation on Earth can develop nuclear weapons, all you need is the will. It is going to be a more highly proliferated world and we have to be talking about how to manage that. Yes, we need to do sanctions in order to express our displeasure with North Korea and to put pressure on it, which we hope could result in regime transformation or change. But this notion that the only acceptable outcome which we will get is him giving up nuclear weapons, we fool nobody but ourselves. So to manage it, we'd be better off if we tried to bring them to use perhaps the best term now, the community of nations. Yes, although they don't show much interest in that either. Think of it this way. Not now, but if we expressed a desire for that and allowed them to keep their weapons. Which is politically unsayable in the United States right now. And this isn't simply a problem for President Trump. Any president would be in this position. He's exacerbated it in my view, but he didn't create the problem. It's been a failure of American diplomacy over many presidencies. It's been a failure of Chinese diplomacy. But here we are. He has nuclear weapons. He's not going to give them up. And so the sooner we face up to that fact, the better off we'll be. You know, before we end, tell us, how did you develop this expertise in your interest in China? It was serendipity, which is a fancy word for dumb luck. I went to Syracuse University. I studied literature, painting, and illustration. I wanted to be a cartoonist, illustrator, writer. I then graduated and was marginally employed in numerous ways and decided I wanted to travel. I joined the Foreign Service. So and you they, did not study Chinese no, before no, no, you I, entered I the No, no, I started Chinese as an adult out of, after I was out of university. But then, you know, I was, again, lucky. I, I took to it. I worked very, very hard at it. I was young. I was single. I had no family. I sort of made myself a monk to the language for a couple of years and continued to grind away at it. And where did you interpret for Henry Kissinger? That was in Washington when the then leader of China, Jiang Zemin, came in 1997 under the Clinton administration and he gave a policy address in Washington and Kissinger hosted. And I I interpreted Kissinger's words for Jiang Zemin at that event. And how can people keep up with your work now? Through going to the Wilson Center website. Go to the Wilson Center, you'll find the Kissinger Institute on China in the United States. And you'll see publications, op-eds, a lot of interviews. Last Friday I did something with a guy I hadn't heard of. Everybody else had his name is Jim Parsons. He's the star of The Big Bang Theory. He's got a Sirius XM show. I did a conversation with them that he can hear. I do NPR Morning Edition quite a bit. So please go to our website and let me know what you think. Well, we certainly have enjoyed having you on Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. Well, Thanks it's a again. pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.